Time magazine article that was published back in 1990 entitled Score One for the Bible. It was noted that one of the most well-known Old Testament stories, this story right here of Jericho's walls falling flat outward, that that story had been confirmed by archaeology. Then Brian Woods uh, began to examine the excavation site, the old materials and uh, elements of broken pottery, a number of different things he examined as he, as he went back over that uh, set of, of details. What he discovered was that the story here contained in Joshua 6 correlates perfectly in terms of timing and also in terms of the circumstances uh, with the available archaeological evidence that we have today. Now, for a whole generation or two of scholars, it had been thought that, that the story, as it is told here, of Jericho's ruin was hopelessly out of accord with the facts. But it turns out that as, as the evidence had been reviewed again, what it found to be true was that, was that Jericho did indeed fall exactly the way the Bible speaks of it here, and exactly in the time frame that is consistent with the unfolding of these events of of exodus and conquest in the 15th century before Christ. Now, to all of us who believe that the Bible is inspired and inerrant, it really shouldn't surprise us at all, really, that the details have been confirmed finally. But there was a detail that uh, was unearthed also in the process of these excavations, I think, that, that, that uh, confirms the detail that we have here in our text, which underscores really the meaning of this passage for us. And that is, as they re-excavated, as they dug down into the remains of Jericho, about 50 feet below the earth, what they found was a broad band of black soot, indicating that Jericho had been burned. Not only did the walls fall flat and outward, but the walls had been, uh, rather Jericho had been burned to the ground, as the Bible tells us. So what they found was that there was there were walls that had fallen outward. There was evidence of a fire. That there were uh, big, huge pots full of grain, which suggests that uh, the downfall and destruction of Jericho happened almost instantaneously, just as the Bible says. Uh, over and over again, what you find is that the facts of the Bible are confirmed by the facts uh, of archaeology. So the walls speak, and the black soot speaks, and the pots full of grain speaks. They all proclaim that there was a sudden destruction, sudden calamity came upon Canaan at the hand of Israel. And they all speak to this day, 3,500 years later, as a symbol of divine judgment. That's what this passage is all about. We ask ourselves, why all these details of marching around cities and, and walls collapsing and, and, and all the miraculous uh, features of this passage? We might be asking ourselves today, what in the world does this passage mean to me? And, and here is simply the headline. We'll have to prove this out. But, but this passage is all about a symbol of divine judgment. In other words, the judgment that awaits all 
who reject Jesus Christ when he comes again in final and climactic judgment. And we want to unfold that from our passage here this morning. And, but before we uh, prove that out from our text, we want to build our way up, first of all, to the actual conquest of Jericho itself. And the building up of that actual conquest of Jericho begins with this rather strange encounter back in chapter 5, verse 13, uh, between Joshua and the angel of the Lord. And as we approach this figure, uh, we find that he's a very fascinating, intriguing, mysterious, even scary kind of a person. Joshua, it says, was walking out in the field. He was probably out surveying the land, getting himself prepared for battle. And it says, behold, it seems us out of nowhere, all of a sudden, this man appears. And this man is very intimidating. He has his sword drawn in his hand. And so Joshua looks to him and he says, are you a friend or foe? Are you on our side or are you on theirs? And notice here the response of, of this terrifying individual. He says, no. That doesn't quite answer Joshua's question, does it? He says, no, rather I indeed come as captain of the host of the Lord. And, and something in the posture of him standing there with his sword, and something in terms of the tone and authority of his voice, uh, clued Joshua in that this is no ordinary individual. He falls to his feet, and he bows down before him, and he says, what does my Lord want? It's no surprise then that as uh, scholars have looked at this, Orthodox interpreters over uh, the history of interpretation have pretty much agreed that this is a Christophany. This is an appearance of, of Christ before his incarnation. Christ here is this angel of the Lord. And that's confirmed from a number of details. But one of the details that would confirm that is this little phrase here where it says, sword drawn in his hand. The only time that set of words appear in the Hebrew Bible is in Numbers chapter 22, which you have there a report of the angel of the Lord standing in the road, stopping Balaam's donkey from going forward. Remember, Balaam was going forward to curse Israel, and his donkey stopped cold in his tracks, and he turned back, and, and, and Balaam tried to beat that donkey to make it go forward. And you remember that the donkey turned around and talked to Balaam? Remember that? And, and, and then the Lord opened up Balaam's eyes to see the angel of the Lord standing before him with his sword drawn. And the other only, only other time that this word is used, or this set of words here is used precisely like this, is in First Corinthians, or rather, First Chronicles 16. Again, the angel of the Lord visits Israel in destruction. So what we have here is a picture of the pre-incarnate Christ coming to Joshua, and this coming of this angel, or Christ in this angelic, uh, uh, human-like form, was predicted, prophesied of, or foretold. Exodus chapter 23, 20 says, Behold, I am sending, I'm going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way, to bring you into the place which I have prepared my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and I will completely destroy them. In other words, God had planned it out that, that, that this pre-incarnate coming of Christ would come exactly at the time when Israel was going to engage in battle with its enemies, when it would take up the conquest of the land. God told Israel, I will be with you, I will lead you in conquest. And so we're always to remember as we read these stories of conquest in the land of Canaan, that it was not by the might and power 
of the sword and the spear of the Israelites. It was by the might and power of the sword and spear of the Lord leading his people into battle. We'll come back to that image and explain how that fits into the, the broader meaning of our passage a little bit later. But it's fascinating, as, just as, as soon as this uh, terrifying figure appears, he vanishes. You go to verse 1 of chapter 6, it's as if he's gone. It says, now Jericho was tightly shut up. See, the story does not seem to continue now. Although, in verses 2 through 5, I would argue that uh, this conversation between Joshua and the Lord is, is Joshua's conversation with this angel. But this angel just absolutely disappears from sight. we work our way towards uh, the build-up of the conquest, though, we have this very interesting bit of information in Joshua 6.1. Jericho was tightly shut up because of the sons of Israel. No one went out and no one came in. You see, this really stands the heading of the story of conquest now. We're given a snapshot of the fortified position of Jericho. We're given a snapshot of the imposing obstacle which lies before them because Jericho was a doubly fortified city. Two walls we talked about before. One exterior defensive wall, a whole set of debris in between, and then reinforcing that was an inner wall. It was a very difficult uh, location to penetrate. But even worse than that, you have Israel here trying to wage war with this heavily fortified city. You think about it, they they don't have siege ramps, they don't have battering rams, they're totally unskilled at at siege warfare, they've never attacked fortified cities before, they've basically been a bunch of peasants wandering around the wilderness for 40 years. And now now God gives them incredibly difficult challenges, and and really the substance of this summary line here in Joshua 6.1 is to underscore the fact that it's impossible what God is asking them to do now. It's impossible in terms of Israel's military skill and battle proficiency to breach the city to go and to conquer it. Very similar to the, the great imposing difficulty that we found back in Joshua 3 and 4 when, when Israel was told by God to get up and to go across the Jordan. And just about the time when the priests are to tip their toes in the Jordan, the narrative stops and says, at this time of the year, in the spring, the banks of the Jordan overflow. And the whole concept that's being communicated by that little brief snapshot is to say, this is impossible, unless it's performed by the Lord. That's what Joshua 6 one is saying. This is impossible unless this warrior who we just met here in chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, will take up his sword and do something miraculous to bring those walls down. So we're set up in a sense to say, God, what are you going to do to relieve the situation? What are you going to do, Lord, to bring these walls down? So now that we're all leaning forward on our seat asking, what are you going to do? God tells us what he's going to do. Look at verse 2. See, I have given you Jericho. There's promise right there. Joshua, I have given you Jericho. Don't fret. Now, here's God's plan. You're going to march around the city. Now, in a sense, this is laughable. 
a fortified city. Israel has no weaponry. It has uh, no proficiency. It has no military ability tactically to take these walls down. And so what God says to them, there's an impossible obstacle before you, and here's how you're going to breach that city. You're going to walk around it. For six days, you're going to walk around it, blowing a bunch of horns with a bunch of priests out there, and there's armed people before and behind them, and you're just going to walk around the city one time. You're, not, you're, going to be, you're going to be stone cold silent except for the blowing of those ram's horns by the priests. And then on the seventh day, and you're waiting, maybe something really neat's going to come out of this. You know, God has a, a really spectacular shock and all kind of a plan. But no, the seventh day you're going to walk around it seven times, blowing trumpets by the priest's sword, seven times. And then finally, after that, you're going to shout, and I'll give you the city. Now, what immediately strikes you is that this sounds like a foolish plan. There's no military strategy. There's no military tactics here. It just seems like God is asking them to do something which is the opposite of of sound military strategy, which is to stretch yourself out and to walk around in columns around the city, making yourself vulnerable and open to attack. And not only that, marching around the city in no way seems to, to, to most normal people to, to lead to the desired result, which is the tumbling down of the walls. I mean, in every way, uh, this, this looks like a really foolish plan. And, and Calvin commenting on this, uh, this particular a strategy says the Lord often for a time conceals uh, his own might under weakness. I mean, if you've never read the story before, what would you be thinking? If you've never heard the song, the walls of Joshua, uh, the walls of Jericho came a tumbling down, what would you think is going to happen? The Lord conceals his might under weakness. Well, not surprisingly, Israel submits. They follow the plan. And verses 6 through 14 is a rather detailed um, description of Israel's obedience. Uh, what the writer does here is he takes uh, the first two days of that seven-day period and he blows them up large. The first day he really blows up large, right? He goes into lots of detail about how Israel... Uh, submitted to all the little things the Lord says. The right formation, the priest, the Ark of the Covenant, the blowing the ram's horns. Uh, all of those things are, are, are just enlarged tremendously. And then, then you get down to verse 12 through 14. The report now here, it's a little bit smaller in terms of the second day. They did everything right. And then it just tucks in at the end of verse 14. They did that for six days. It's kind of fascinating how the, the writer develops this. It blows that up large. And now, verses 15 through 21, you get to the heart of the story, really. Look at verse 15. We're, we're now zeroing in on the, the seventh day. Here is the climax of the story, as it were. It says, on the seventh day they rose early at the dawning of the day, and they marched around the city in the same manner seven times. Only on that day they marched around the city seven times. You got it, right? They marched seven times. And now, verse 16, here it comes. The priests blew the trumpets, and then Joshua said to people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. They finally reached the climax. They finally reached the moment in which the miracle was going to be performed. Uh, uh, the writer here has placed you in the boots of these soldiers. Shout, Joshua says. 
And then look at verse 17. The city shall be under a ban. <laughs> it and all the Lord belongs to it. Only You get that. For, for now, one, two, three verses. Joshua, after he's just yelled at them to shout, starts giving them a bunch of instructions. Well, you know what most scholars believe is that Joshua didn't say, okay, now Israel, what you do is, is shout at the top of your lungs. Oh, by the way, save Rahab, put the city in her band, kill all its cattle, all its inhabitants. By the way, take the silver and the gold. Don't take any of that for yourself because you do. It's going to be harmful for you. Go ahead and put that into the treasury of the Lord. Now shout. Now, most writers believe, most commentators now believe that this little story here is a speech that Joshua gave them prior to battle and has been inserted right into the narrative just at the moment when the, the battle was supposed to start. It, it's almost as if, verse 16, you get the climactic command to shout and it cuts the commercial. Then... You get the final report, verse 20 and 21. It says, so the people shouted. That, that fits very naturally uh, with the end of verse 16 now. The priests blew the trumpets. The people heard the sound of the trumpet. The people shouted with a great shout. The wall fell down. So the people went to the city. Every man straight ahead. They took the city. They utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man, woman, young child, oxen, sheep, donkey, with the edge of the sword. After all that buildup, we get about two sentences about the walls crumbling down. Now, I've tried to prepare you for this, but what I really believe here, what has been done by the way the narrative has been developed, is to have you not focus on the fact that walls came tumbling down miraculously. I don't really think that that's the heart of the message here. The heart of the message is this bracket here in verses 17 and 19, bringing you right up on the brink of this miracle to occur. We have this, um, we have this big parenthesis. I believe that this signals to us what was trying to be communicated. And look at what was trying to be communicated. It's the very first sentence of verse 17. The city shall be under a ban. And then the second thing is Rahab and the harlot. Rahab the harlot and her family shall live. Those are the two messages of the story. Is that the conquest of Jericho stands as a symbol of divine judgment. It is a prefiguring of the day of wrath. And then the second message that emerges from this story is that in the midst of this outpouring of divine judgment, there's gospel. Let's unravel that a moment. It's in the build-up to the conquest. We've already told you what the meaning is. It's about judgment. We should ask ourselves a question. Why does God want us to see that message of judgment here in the city of Jericho? If we step back from that, we can learn something of God's reasons for sending Israel into the land to destroy it, other than to give it to his people. Is that God had long 
spoken of this, that he was going to be angry with the sins of this people. We're told back in Genesis 15, at the time when God promises uh, to Abraham a, a vast uh, seed, and the fact that they would occupy the land of Canaan, uh, uh, God says at that moment to Abraham, he says, in the fourth generation, they, that is your seed, your family, will return here. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. In other words, right at the time when God is promising this land to the children of Abraham, he gives Abraham um, a reason for why he's going to send his people back from Egypt into the land to take it. And that is because the iniquity of the Canaanites will finally be so overflowing that God can't resist anymore. God has to bring judgment against this nation. It's not yet complete. In other words, suggesting that it's going to grow complete. It's going to overflow. And there's going to be nothing else that God can do besides wipe it off the face of the earth. That immorality is spelled out even more as you read through the rest of the Pentateuch. Leviticus 18, verse 24 and following says, To Israel, do not defile yourselves by any of these things. For by all these, the nations which I am casting out before you, that is, the Amorites, the Jebusites, the Canaanites, all of those people, uh, these nations have defiled themselves. The land has become defiled, therefore I brought its punishment. You say, well, what are these things? He says, do not defile yourselves by any of these things, because that's the reason why I bring judgment. Well, if you read back in context, Leviticus 18, uh, God has been uh, proclaiming his standards for sexual morality. He gives a long list of prohibitions of, of sexual sins Israel is not to engage in. They are not to violate the laws of consanguinity. They are not to uh, enter into sexual relations with blood relatives, son with daughter, nephew with aunt, brother with sister, father-in-law with daughter-in-law, grandfather with granddaughter, uh, brother-in-law with sister-in-law. There's a whole list of prohibitions about the kinds of uh, blood relationships and, and family ties that prevent people from uh, engaging in sexual immorality with each other. And if you do those, it's, it's an abomination of the Lord, the text says. And it goes on to recount other sexual sins, adultery, that is sex with another married person, homosexuality, bestiality. There, there's a long list of, of sexual sins there spelled out in the passage. And then verse 24 says, For these things, God will drive out the nations before you. In other words, the suggestion is that Canaan, the land of Canaan and its people, are just overflowing with gross sexual immorality. We're also told in Deuteronomy chapter 18, another reason why God is driving uh, the Canaanites out of their land and destroying them. Verse 12 says, for whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. Again, he's referring to the nations or the people who inhabit the land of Canaan. God is referring here very specifically to sins that they are engaging in that are leading God to overflow with anger and going to pour out his wrath on them. And what are the things they were doing? 
Lord, the verses just before us tell us. Anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. One who uses divination. One who practices witchcraft. Or one who interprets omens. Or a sorcerer. Or one who casts a spell. Or a medium. Or a spiritist. Or one who calls up the dead. For these things, God is driving them out of the land. In other words, for their mysticism, for their, their false religion, their, their fascination with the occult, with the dark side of life. They are consumed with this kind of thing. And God says, for these things, I am driving them out of the land. Now step back from that and look at Jericho. What we have to believe here, what we have to assume is that Jericho being the leading city of the land of Canaan must have been particularly uh, consumed with these kinds of sins. Uh, Jericho is one of the oldest standing civilizations in the whole world. Archaeologists tell us that there has been a continuous dwelling in the city of Jericho since the beginning of the urban revolution, which marks the beginning of when people began to live in cities and plant crops and lead stable lives. For thousands of years, in other words, this city had been there. And over time, it had grown more and more corrupt and, and began to overflow with, with sins. And whatever Jericho did began to flow down to the rest of the cities downstream. And so, in a sense, a Jericho is the San Francisco of its country. It is the Hollywood of its country. It is the pinnacle of corruption in Canaan. And for that reason, God has a special desire to stamp upon it. The markings of his wrath. It's confirmed by the particular commands that are given here in the passage. I've already noted to you how, how we, we just transition from the command to shout in verse 16 to the command to place the whole city under ban. You read in verse 18 what that means. It says, You only keep yourselves from the things under the ban." So that you do not covet them and take some of the things out of the ban and make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble upon it. Now if you compare that over against chapter 8 verse 2 and the destruction of the city of Ai, you see that there is a, a special ban being placed here on the city of Jericho. Because here are the instructions about Ai. It says, you shall do it to Ai and its king just as you did to Jericho and its king. You shall take only its spoil and its cattle as plunder for yourselves. See, there in the city of Ai, God permits the people of Israel uh, to take treasures away from the battle for themselves. But in Jericho here, uh, God explicitly forbids that. And not only does he explicitly forbid that, he also commands the burning of the city. You put all of those details together and you find one passage that clarifies the kind of judgment that God indicates by this. And that's Deuteronomy 13. Deuteronomy 13 gives a special set of instructions when God is really angry with a city. 
And in those instructions for holy war, there God says in Deuteronomy 13, beginning with verse 15, You shall surely strike the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying it, all that is in it, its cattle with the edge of the sword. Then you shall gather all of its booty in the middle of the open square, and you shall burn the city as all with fire, as a burnt offering before the Lord, and it will ruin it forever, and it shall never be rebuilt. All of those details emerge here in Joshua 6. You can't take any of the treasure. You can't keep the cattle alive. You must kill every man, woman, and child in the city except for Rahab. And then when you're done with all that, you must burn it with fire. And then fifthly, you may never rebuild the city. All of those instructions are present here in our passage. Verse 26, you find the prohibition against rebuilding it. Verse 24, you find the fact that they burned it to the ground just as the archaeological evidence proclaims to this day. In other words, what God is doing in these instructions here to Jericho, he's giving very specific and detailed instructions because God is stamping on the conquest of Jericho, a symbol for all generations to read of his divine wrath. It's not just that God's angry. It's not just an outpouring of wrath. It is a message about the wrath that will be poured out when God comes in judgment at the end of the age. You say, how do you get that out of the passage? As I said, we'll come back to this frightening figure in chapter 5. The angel with the sword drawn. It's interesting as you study out this particular mysterious appearing of the pre-incarnate Christ. Uh, as scholars who, who take a great deal of time studying this kind of thing have labeled this the divine warrior. And you find this warrior showing up in a number of places throughout the Old Testament and then even in the New. There's a number of places we could go in the Old Testament to bear this out, but uh, with time growing shorter this morning, I'm just going to read from Joel 2. Uh, Joel chapter 2, verse 11 says, The Lord utters his voice before his army, just like this soldier here that's leading or is the captain of the host or the army of the Lord. It says, As the Lord utters his voice before his army, surely his camp is very great, for the strong as he carries out his word, the day of the Lord, is indeed great and very awesome. Who can endure it? You see, this uh, warrior comes in conjunction with the day of the Lord, which is the Old Testament prophecy of the coming of the Lord in judgment upon the world. See, those two things are connected. The, the divine warrior coming in judgment on the day of the Lord. That same imagery is then picked up in Revelation chapter 19. There's a lot of places in the New Testament where the imagery of the divine warrior appears in the New Testament even. But it's picked up particularly in Revelation chapter 19, beginning with verse 11. You don't have to turn there, but if you want to, you can. But just listen to, to the description of Christ now coming at the end of the age in judgment. It says, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. 
His eyes are as a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, are following him on white horses. You read a little bit further and you read that a sword comes out of his mouth. The description of the Lord coming in judgment at the second coming uses this military imagery, this imagery of the divine warrior. It connects that divine warrior in the day of uh, the Lord with the day of judgment. It says, this is how it's going to be. When he comes in that day, it's no longer a day of coming to people for salvation. It's a coming of God in time and in space to end this age and to bring judgment. But you see, as you, as you read Joshua 6 and you read these details of the divine warrior and you read the fact that the divine warrior uh, puts a particular kind of band and gives Joshua particular kinds of instructions about who they are to kill and, and who may be kept alive, only Rahab, and, and the burning of the city, the prohibition against this rebuilding, all of those details uh, come together. You read those and you step back from that passage and, and you compare this image of the divine warrior as it's developed throughout the Old Testament. And then you see how it's developed into the new, and that, that image of the warrior associated with, with um, the coming of the Lord in judgment. You put all those things together, and you can't help but believe that Joshua 6 now is, is telling us ahead of time, this is what judgment looks like. Joshua 6 is a, a prefiguring, a divine wrath being poured out upon those who refuse to accept the Lord and His Christ when He comes in judgment at the last day. What can we learn from these ruins of Jericho? We learn that God is a divine warrior who will come in judgment. Messages stamped across the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 says, You yourselves know the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. People will be saying peace and safety and then destruction will come upon them suddenly. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Peter chapter 3, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. All across the New Testament you have prophecies of this coming day of judgment and it will be a day where there will be no more gospel invitations handed out. It will be a day when there is no longer opportunity to repent and confess the Lord for salvation. It will simply be a swift, sudden coming Lord in destructive judgment upon his enemies. And that is the message here of Joshua chapter 6. God doesn't give the Jericho people uh, any more opportunity to repent. There's no more an opportunity for somebody like Rahab to stand up and to say, Save me too, I'm clinging now to the God who parts Red Sea and leads his people across the Jordan River on dry ground. There's no more opportunity for that. 
And this is the, the, the Lord coming in judgment swiftly upon people who are living in unrepentant sin. That's the message of Joshua 6. As we understand it, within the scope of all of the scriptures. You see, as you hear this passage read this morning, it's not for us to sit here and, and smile and smirk over when we think about all the oddities of the passage. A, a bunch of foolish-looking soldiers walking around a city day after day after day for seven days. It's not for us to sit here and say, oh, wow, what an interesting thing that happened in Jericho. A bunch of soldiers walked around the city. A bunch of priests blew some trumpets. And at the end, the people shouted and the walls came crumbling down. Fascinating. Interesting. Even the archaeologists today can agree that's how it happened. Wow, that's an interesting set of information. And then go on to the next thought. The details of the passage have a point. They're proclaiming a message that that God is going to come in judgment and there will be no opportunity after that to be delivered from divine wrath. What what the passage is saying is get yourself ready. If you're living in unrepentant sin, you need to get yourself ready because the day of wrath is coming. And it comes swiftly. And it comes suddenly. It comes when everybody's saying to themselves, peace and safety, there's no problems in my life, everything's going just fine, I don't need God because my bank account is full, I'm having a great happiness in my life, my relationships are good, and I'm feeling healthy, and I couldn't be better. That's when the day of the Lord comes, the Bible says. And when it comes, there's no opportunity left for repentance. And so this passage calls people to repentance. It calls people to think about whether they're ready to meet that warrior coming in judgment. The ruins of Jericho tell us that we must be prepared through repentance and true faith in Christ. That's the second application of the passage this morning. It's It's fascinating that these ruined walls don't just tell us about judgment. It's fascinating that these ruined walls tell us about the gospel. Again, verse 17 sticks out like a sore thumb. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers who were sent out. And then verses 22 through 24 go back to the same thing and expand it in broader terms. In other words, right in the midst of a message of proclamation about divine judgment, there is a message of gospel. For all those who would repent, for all those who would see themselves as violators of the law of God, for all of those who would see God as he is holy and righteous and just and full of wrath against sin, and as one who will certainly judge it, for all who understand that and understand that they have violated God's commands and that they are guilty and they are subject to that same wrath, but who will cling to his Christ. He says there's, there's hope. 
I mean, it goes out of its way to tell us why Rahab was spared, because she hid the messengers. And I, and I told you about this before. You look at it in the New Testament, James chapter 2. James looks back at, at Rahab's activity and says, Was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers? It's as if he lifts that line right out of here. It says, she will, she will live because she hid the messengers. James lifts that language right up and says, she was justified. She demonstrated her justification. You see, when she heard about the power of God who could part the Red Sea and could lead his people across it on dry ground, she believed in the Lord. She had true and saving faith. She fled her sins. She, she left her life of prostitution. And she ran to Jesus. And she found refuge in him. Because she did that here, she's spared when judgment day comes. That's the message of the passage for us as well. That there is hope in view of the coming judgment. That if you flee your sin and you run to Jesus, there's forgiveness of sins. And it's particularly interesting to me that, that Rahab is the one who stands out as the person who can be delivered in judgment. It's not the Pharisee. It's not the person who's interested in religion. It's not the person who's lived a neat and tidy and cleaned up life. And then finally at the end just gave themselves over to Jesus just to kind of help the whole thing out. No, Rahab, a prostitute who lived in the city of Jericho, which had participated in gross and scandalous sins that warranted this outpouring of divine wrath, which would prefigure the, sec- the wrath of the second coming. That kind of person who lived in that kind of city, who participated in those kinds of sins, is one who is delivered. Telling us this morning that there's hope for sinners who are steeped in idolatry, Sexual immorality, false religion, mysticism, all of the gross sins which define our age today. The kind of people who live in modern day Jericho. And participate in its sins, there's hope. There's hope. If you flee to Jesus... But the hope is only for you if you accept it today. The hope is for you only if you accept it today. The Bible constantly proclaims that in the New Testament. Now, today is the day of salvation. Because the coming of the Lord is like a thief in the night. And so it's for today. You see, it's today that Jesus is still approachable. It's today that Jesus is meek and mild. It's today that Jesus is just like he is in the Gospels, stretching his arms out to sinners. That's that's how Jesus is today. Jesus is constantly stretching out his arms, and he's constantly calling people to himself, and Jesus is constantly promising to wash away sins. Jesus is constantly saying he's going to give you his righteousness. Jesus is encouraging, he's prompting, he's wooing, he's crying over sinners, he's pleading with them to come. But when Jesus gets on the white horse to to ride down into judgment, Jesus no longer offers invitation. And so I plead with you this morning. I plead with you this morning.
Do not wait until you see Jesus coming as the divine warrior on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth with red, blood-red eyes. That's too late. The message we learn here from these verses of the destruction, the swift and sudden and climactic destruction of Jericho is that we want to meet Jesus as he is today. Promising salvation for all who would flee their sins and in faith cling to him. And so I plead with you this morning. Come unto Jesus. Lay hold of his promises. And you will experience the blessing of salvation and deliverance from the terrible wrath that will be poured out. Let's pray.